Hey, I'm Pastor Joel, and I just want to say thank you for downloading or streaming this message today. My prayer for you is that you're blessed by the content that you hear. As a church, our desire is to make disciples of Jesus, and we do that by helping people to trust and follow Him in every aspect of their daily life. So if this is something that blesses you, we just hope that you'll feel free to share this with others so that they might be encouraged and challenged by it as well. We are Stephen and Melissa Hamby, and today we're reading our scripture from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this day that you have made, and thank you for just this congregation of believers, Lord. Uh, I pray that you will bless the message as Joel gets ready to come and share with us, and that you would just help each and every one of us to focus in to let the distractions of the week behind and the week ahead to just fall to the wayside and let us just listen in intently and hear your word and let it take root in our hearts, Lord. We love you and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks so much, Stephen and Mel. Appreciate you all reading that today. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 1. We are in a teaching series that we started last week called Filter. And we're looking at some things and what does it mean to have a biblical worldview? Uh, Everyone in the world has a worldview and every worldview takes faith uh, in order to live out what you uh, operate by. And so we're trying to answer some of the most uh, simple and yet most complex questions that exist in the world, the questions that everybody has been asking 
for all of our existence as humanity on earth. And here's what's really interesting when you think about worldview. Uh, if you look at, especially those who have a more secular worldview, if you look at people uh, who would answer questions from a, a humanist perspective or a naturalist perspective or an atheistic perspective, when the questions of life come about, those answers are constantly changing based on the times, based on what's happening in the world, based on uh, new evidence that's discovered. They're having to reevaluate their answers to worldview. But as Christians, here's what you'll find. Our worldview for the last several thousand years has not changed. And if you ask us the same questions a thousand years from now, it's not going to change. Now, some of the evidence that we collect will change, but our worldview about these things will be the same. And so here's what we gave you last week just as a basic definition of a worldview. If you're taking notes this morning and want to write some things down or follow along on our app, you can do that. But here's what we said. A worldview is simply the lens through which we view the world and make decisions about how we're going to live. That's the basic interpretation, basic idea. It's this worldview is a, a filter or a lens through which we look at the world and we start to take in and process information and make decisions about the things that are taking place all around us. So here's the next thing that you'll find. The filter that we use to understand and respond to everything around us is our worldview. Uh, and so this morning, I want to show you a, uh, a chart or a graph that describes some, some of the basic framework for a Christian worldview. We're going to just kind of mention this this morning, and then in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see more in depth uh, how this plays out and what this really looks like. But if you were to ask the questions in life and try to find biblical answers to the questions of life, here's what you would kind of find and what you would come around to. Number one is that there is a sovereign God, and that God is the creator of all things. And then God is also good. And we see this, even as he creates, he proclaims things to be good. And when he gets to the pinnacle of creation, humanity, he says they're very good. In fact, that's what we see next in the blue circles, that man is God's image bearer, that we are formed in the image of God, that we represent God on this earth. But there's a problem. Even though God is good and his creation is good, there is evil that exists. And because evil is real, Man is fallen. We chose to go against God and to rebel against God in order to pursue our ways and our desires instead of his. So evil's real and evil's deceptive. As mankind falls, we have this issue that comes is that we're going to die in our sins. And as a result of that, the last blue square or circle on the bottom is that man is incomplete. In our fallenness, in our brokenness, we're incomplete without a relationship with God. In our sinfulness, we're being destroyed. And yet, the very real answer to life's last question is this. The last red circle at the bottom is that evil will be defeated and is defeated through the cross of Jesus. And so anything that you have that you look at in the world is basically found within the framework of these kinds of things. And here's what I'm excited about as we wrap up this series in the next couple of weeks. Uh, week four of this series, you're going to hear from Rick Hasty, who actually designed and developed this graph. Uh, he's on our sermon planning team and one of the guys in our church uh, that really just helps me navigate and walk through some of these things. And uh, Rick, I told him this week, I said, you've forgotten more about worldview and apologetics than I'll ever know. Like he just has that mentality. He understands this stuff and he lives it and breathes it. And you're going to get to hear from him on week four of this series to wrap up some things. But I wanted you to see that this morning because he'll go more in depth with it. But for us, as we think about a Christian worldview, our Christian views lead us to believe in moral absolutes, in miracles, in human dignity, 
and in the possibility of redemption to overcome evil. That's really what you find on this chart, is that you see these things that allow us to say there is a bigger picture out there. There are absolutes in our life. There are miracles that take place. And so when you ask this question, where does your worldview take you? You start to remember some things, hopefully, that we talked about last week, is that every worldview is taking us somewhere. Every belief you have is moving you toward something. And so when you ask the question, well, where is my worldview taking me? Where does your worldview take you? I would just ask some of these simple questions. Does your worldview permit that there are absolute truths that remain true for all people everywhere for all time? And does your worldview permit for miracles, the supernatural, the things that we can't explain or observe in our universe that aren't measurable or able to be explained? Does your worldview allow for the supernatural? Does your worldview believe that all people have dignity and intrinsic value? And then finally, does your worldview believe that redemption is possible and eternal and spiritual life exists after physical death? So we're going to do our best to kind of walk through these things and explain or describe how we think about some of these things because we're essentially asking some very basic questions when we try to figure out what does it mean to have a biblical worldview? What does it mean to think through the lens of Scripture? How do we take our walk through life and our journey through life and place it at the feet of Jesus and say, when I don't understand, I trust that what you've given to us in your word is going to guide us through. And I'm going to place my hope in the authority of your word. And I'm going to answer the big questions about life by what you tell us and describe in your word. So here are the basic three questions that we're kind of answering and that all people in all time have been asking, whether you're a humanist, a naturalist, an atheist, an agnostic, a Christian, whatever it is, you're asking these questions and people have been asking these questions for all of time. Number one, where did we get here or where did we come from and why are we here? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Number two, what's wrong with the world? Like I can look out and see that there's something wrong. The world is broken. It doesn't operate the way it's supposed to. Nothing seems right. What's wrong with the world? And then the third question is this. How do we fix it? What's the answer to this problem? And where did I come from? Why am I here? What's wrong with the world that I see around me? And how do we fix it? How does it get fixed? And so we're going to try to answer some of those questions this morning. I mainly want us to look at the first question, and we're just going to tackle this from a biblical perspective. Where did we come from? Why are we here? Those are the two big questions. Uh, So I wonder, and I was thinking about this this week, why is it that we ask this question? Why is it that this question is so profound to us? Where did we come from? Why are we here? And I think the answer is, is that God has put something in us that causes us to ask this question to turn our attention to hopefully try to find him. That would be his ultimate desire. But a lot of people answer this question in a lot of different ways. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Some people would say, well, we're a cosmic accident. This is just all random chance. We just managed to make it, and the universe just kind of spit this planet out, and we just happen to have organisms that formed into uh, life, and then here we are, right? And so some people would say there was an alien race with intelligent life that planted us here. They came from thousands of light years away and distant galaxies away, and they came and they planted life on planet Earth. We're all just an an element of alien life. And then the third thing that people would say 
is that over millions or even billions of years, a simple single-celled organism mutated and evolved into complex life, making all of the species and all of the life that we find around us. And so there's these answers that come out, and everyone, like we said last week, everyone requires faith. But the Bible tells us that this is an important question because of something that Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And I want you to see this with me. It's going to be on the screen for us to read this morning. Here's what we find from Ecclesiastes 3. It says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity where? In the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Why do we ask the question, where do we come from? Why are we here? Because God planted in our hearts an awareness and a knowledge that there's something bigger than us that's out there. He set eternity in our hearts. He's caused us to go, there's something bigger that I'm supposed to be aware of. There's a longing in me that can't be matched by anything in this life and on this world. And there's certainly something out there that I need to know. So why am I here? And what's my purpose here? My purpose is to find and discover who God is and what the eternal plan is for my life. And the biblical worldview explains next where our significance comes from Uh, And it's from the reality that we're created by God. When we think about this and we go, okay, well, why are we here? Where did we come from? The biblical answer is God created us. The biblical answer is God placed us here. Even atheists acknowledge that there seems to be some kind of design in this. Fred Hoyle, an atheist who spent his life studying uh, physics and astronomy and cosmology, uh, Fred Hoyle said this, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology and that there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. Right, so his answer is there seems to be something. He doesn't call it God, but there's a super intellect out there that's been monkeying with things in the universe to make life possible on earth. And Genesis 1 would say, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so when we see these things and we look, and I was listening to a clip this week, something that uh, Bill Nye, the science guy, all of our friends growing up that taught us science and all those kinds of things, right? Uh, he says this in a, a pretty famous quote that you can find on YouTube. He's speaking at a, a humanist convention, and he says, hey, listen, you know what? Our sun, nothing special in the universe. It's just a speck in the galaxy. And our planet, just a speck. Nothing at all significant or helpful about it. And our lives are specks in a huge universe. There's nothing worth anything about our lives. We are just a speck. And the reality is, he's right. If you look at the grand scope of the cosmos, we're a teeny tiny little speck in it all, right? And yet, he's wrong. Because when you think about where God placed Earth in the Milky Way galaxy, that it is perfectly designed to host life on this planet. 
And that sun that's an insignificant speck among other stars, it is. It's small compared to other stars. But guess what? If it were any hotter, we would burn up. If it were any colder, we would freeze to death. The location of Earth in the galaxy, in the Milky Way, if we were any closer to the sun, we would all roast to death. If we were any further away, our planet would be an ice block. We would freeze. Even just our space in the Milky Way galaxy helps us understand that if we were located anywhere else within this galaxy, interplanetary stuff would not work. The gravitational pull would not work. Nothing would be designed right to host life on planet Earth. We are specifically placed in space to sustain life on planet Earth. And you go, somebody did that. Somebody did that. And so when we think about this, we go to Genesis, and we start to answer the question again from a biblical worldview. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 say, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. God's talking about himself, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, the three-in-one triune God. He's saying, Let us make man in our image in our likeness, so that they will rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So in Genesis 1, we see he made mankind in his image. Genesis 2, we tell how he forms us out of dirt. He breathes life into us. We're special in his creation. Everything else God speaks into existence with man. He fashions us and forms us and breathes life into us. Then you move to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, this is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them, and he named them mankind when they were created. So here's the next thing on your outline if you're following along. We are the imago Dei, the image or the likeness of God. Why are we here? Where did we come from? We came from God. And we're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. When God says, let us make man like us, it doesn't mean that we look like God. We're not made in the image of God in a physical sense. God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical quality and component to him other than when Jesus stepped into humanity. But in God's nature... He makes us like him, that we have attributes like God, that we have qualities and characteristics like God, that he shares aspects of his divine nature with us. Mankind was the final thing God created. We're the pinnacle of his creation to be his imagers or his representatives here on earth. He goes, as my representatives, as the ones who are here on planet earth to carry my image, to bear my name, to be like me in this place, I'm going to give you some things to understand and do. So the question that we come to is that we're the ultimate stewards of all that God created. And when we ask this question, where did we come from? Here's the answer. If you're taking notes, just check this out and write it down. We are the purposeful creation of a good, sovereign God. Where did you come from? You are the purposeful creation of a good, sovereign God. And here's the next question that answers for you. Do I matter in the scope of the cosmos, in the universe? Do I matter? And the answer is yes. You have dignity and value and worth more than anything else in all of creation. 
Because you are formed and fashioned purposefully by a good God who made you to carry on his image. And as image bearers, we understand that we have purpose, value, dignity. We're not a cosmic accident or the result of random chance. Because God created you, you have infinite worth. You're valuable. Not just to us, but you're valuable to God. You're valuable to the one who created you. This is why we fight for the dignity of human life. What happens when you don't see life as valuable and having dignity and purpose and infinite worth? And we start to kill the unborn. We'll abort babies for any reason up until the moment of birth. Or we'll move into a place where we start to assist the suicide of the elderly. Not even just the elderly, that's been a thing for a while. But now in the United States, there are debates that are going on as to whether or not we should allow mature teenagers to make decisions about if they should be able to carry on with assisted suicide for any reason they deem necessary. Why? Because people don't see value and dignity and worth. They don't understand we have intrinsic value as God's image bearers. The other thing that happens when we decide there's no value, there's no worth in people, is we'll wipe out a race. Genocide will happen. We'll look at people and go, based on your skin color or your socioeconomic status or your differences in philosophy from me, if you disagree with me in any way, if you stand in my way, I'll just eliminate you. This is where genocide comes into play. This is where things like the Holocaust happen. Why? Because we don't see worth and dignity and value in humanity. They're a problem for us to eliminate. Let's just kill them. And so when we see these things, the biblical worldview gives us a filter to look at life as being precious, designed by God for a purpose. And because we're created by him, we're loved by him. So we read this morning Psalm 139, but I want to put it back on the screen and look at a couple of passages from that chapter. Psalm 139, 13 through 16. The psalmist writes and says, For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days were ordained for me, were written in your book before one of them came to be. Like Science today is now starting to tell us what the Bible has been saying for thousands of years. Life begins at the point of conception. David goes, you, you knew me. You knit me together in my mother's womb before a breath was taken on this earth. All of my days were written down. You formed me. And I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. When we talk about that, and I know there's huge debates raging in our culture right now, and again, biblical worldview, how do we think about this? When does life begin? Why is life important? Can we just deal with life in the womb and kill it any way we want to for any reason that we want to at any point in time that we want to? Here's what we find science telling us, and this is from the American College of Pediatrics. It says, the predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception fertilization. This is not from the Bible. This is from the American Pediatric Association, the College of Pediatrics. They say at fertilization, 
the human being emerges as a whole, genetically distinct, individualized, zygotic, living human organism, a member of the species Homo sapiens, needing only the proper environment in order to grow and develop. The difference between the individual in its adult stage and its zygotic stage is one of form, not nature. Kind of like science is telling us, life begins at conception. From the moment an egg and a sperm unite, there is individual, unique, valuable human life. And so when we see these things that are starting to be proclaimed by science and the scripture's been saying for a while, I love to quote that I read this week from uh, Dr. Watson Bose, the University of Colorado uh, medical school, said the beginning of a single human life is from a biological point of view, a simple and straightforward matter. The beginning is conception. The straightforward biological fact should not be distorted to serve sociological, political, or economic goals. And church, listen, that's what's taking place in our country and around our world today. We're trying to use things for our advantage to serve sociological, political, all kinds of different goals that have nothing to do with valuing human life. And so as we think about these things, we start to see in Scripture the answer to the question, why are we here? When God formed mankind in His image, He tells us the purpose of our existence. And we read this this morning already, but I want us to go back and see Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So read this with me. We're going to go through 28, actually. It says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. And in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God made us. Why are we here? What's our purpose? God made us to have dominion over all that we've made, or all that, all that he's made. He's called us to fill the earth and to subdue it. Right? And when humanity is doing that well, the earth flourishes. And when humanity is subduing the earth poorly, the earth faces damage. Habitats get wiped out. There are different things that take place that are destructive and we ruin the natural beauty that exists for our selfish purposes. So the first thing we're told to do is, hey, go and subdue the earth. Take care of it. Learn about it. Engage in scientific discovery. Engage in mathematical discovery. Learn how we're going to handle the earth. Not just make it do what you want, till the ground, grow crops, but learn about how the universe works. Learn about everything you possibly can and figure out how to multiply God's goodness in this environment that he's placed us to live within. And then the second thing that we see when God tells us to be, uh, is to be fruitful and increase in number. The first thing, subdue the earth. The second thing, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. We are created to create other image bearers. You go, how? Well, God's plan, and he talks about this multiple times in Genesis, is that he forms man and he forms woman, and then he brings them together. The first institution of humanity is not the church, it's not government, it's not anything like that, it's marriage. It's marriage between a man and a woman. He goes, you are going to be the procreators of this earth. When you are united together, you're able to do what God does to create new life. 
and that we're given authority by God to go and fill the earth. We do that in this way that brings pleasure, but also brings the ability to procreate. He goes, that's the point and the purpose. Why are you here? To continue on the image-bearing goodness of God. And we see this with Adam and Eve. God looks at Adam in the garden and goes, it's not good for that guy to be alone. He puts Adam into a deep sleep. He takes a rib from Adam's side. He creates Eve. He brings the two together. Adam goes, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And God says, for this reason, a man's going to leave his father and his mother, be united to his wife, and two become one. Because that's the intent. That's the purpose. Again, worldview. Why do we think about marriage the way that we do? Because this is how God designed it. This is the purpose. And so as we learn to think in these ways, we start to understand that God has put us here to subdue the earth and to fill the earth. But then there's one final answer to the question, why are we here? And here's what it is. We were made by God to know him and to worship him. And here's where I want us to start drawing some final conclusions this morning. I want us to jump to the New Testament in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. And we're going to see from the Apostle Paul as he travels into the city of Athens. And he goes and he speaks at the Oropagus and he starts to talk about Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And there are a group of people in Athens that go, man, this teaching that you have of somebody who comes to life from the dead, like that's foreign to us. <coughs> Excuse me. That's new to us. That's information we've never heard before. We want to hear more about that. And so Paul gets invited to come and speak at a place called Mars Hill. And while he's there and he's speaking, he starts to notice, and as he's been around the city of Athens, he discovers that there are gods everywhere. Statues of gods, busts of gods. There are worship of gods that are going on all over. He even finds one place that has an inscription to it. It's just an empty hole where a bust should be. But on the inscription, it says, to an unknown God. It's like, just in case we left out any gods that we're supposed to be worshiping, we want to have one to the unknown God so that we cover ourselves and that God's not angry at us. So we're going to worship everything you can imagine in existence. And Paul goes, I want to tell you guys about that one, the one you don't know. And he starts to talk to them. And here's what it says in Acts 17, 22 through 34. Paul then stood up in the meeting in the Oropagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everything, everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jesus. Because when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And some of the people became followers of Paul. And they believed. Now, here's what I want us to see in this. As Paul describes these things that are going on, he goes, I want you to understand that from the very beginning, God has been involved from a macro level, big picture level. He created life on this earth. Everything and everyone that breathes and has its existence comes from God. And he placed us on earth, right? Big picture. But then he goes, but God's not just like that. There are some people in our world today who believe that maybe God did create, but he kind of was like a watchmaker. He created it, set it into motion, then set it down and walked away from it, and he's not engaged with it anymore. It just goes on and does its thing, and your watch just keeps working without God's intervention or uh, being a part of the process. But Paul goes, that's not the case. He didn't just put us here and then go, good luck, see you in a few thousand years. He says he placed us here. And not only did he place us here, but he says this. From one man, he made the whole nation of men so that everyone on earth would inhabit the whole earth. And he marked their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He goes, God looked at people and went, I'm going to place you here now. And I'm going to show you where you're going to live. I'm going to create the boundaries for you. I am intimately engaged in this. And when Paul answers that question of why would God be engaged on that level, his answer is, so that you might find God and call out for him and be drawn into relationship with him because he's not far from any of you. In other words, you're not here this morning on accident. You don't live in Kingsport, Tennessee in the year 2022 on accident. All of this is purposeful. When God placed you on earth and gave you the parents that you have and had you born where you are and live where you are, he did it for a purpose. God knew in his sovereign design this would be the best chance in human history for you to know him. That he put you here with purpose so that you would know him and reach out to him and find him. God desires to have this relationship with you. But here's what we find with Paul as he talks to people about this. There's three answers. The first answer is some people hear about these things and the resurrection of the dead and God being able to judge those who don't listen to him and who don't worship him. And people have a real hard time with that. Like, who is God to judge me? God doesn't get to do that. Paul goes, yes, he does. And he proves it by sending his son to this earth, by dying and then coming back to life again. And if that guy says he has the ability to judge, I'm going to trust that he does. I tend to listen to people who come back from the dead. It's just a habit that I have. He goes, if God raised his man to judge the world, what are you going to do with him? And there's three answers. The first one was there were people who sneered at Paul and walked away from him, rejecting it entirely. That's crazy. It's ignorant. The Greek word is hogwash. It's dumb. That was a joke. There's no Greek word for hogwash. <laughs> guys are way too asleep this morning, all right? It's, it's crazy. 
there are people who sneer at Paul and just walk away. Then there's a second group of people. They go, hey, Paul, I'm not completely bought into what you're saying, but that's really interesting. I would be willing to sit and listen to you talk about that more. Can we get together again? And then there's a third group, the people that start to follow Paul, and as a result, they follow Jesus. And here's the truth about that this morning. Those same three answers are what drive everybody in this room today. You are sitting here with one of those three answers in your heart about God and his creation and Jesus and his sacrifice to pay for your sins. Either you're going to outright reject it. I deny it. I don't want to hear about it. It's crazy. Or you're going to go, you know what? This is a little weird. It's a little strange. I don't know if I'm bought in. I still have some other beliefs and views that I espouse. But I'd be willing to have some more conversation about this. I'd be willing to look into this more intently, see if there's something there that I can get my mind around and understand and trust. Can we talk more? And then there's some of you that today are ready to go, man, I'm, I am ready to follow Jesus today. And so I just want to ask us as we close our time out this morning, and MK is going to come back up and, and lead us in one last song. But I want to ask you to, to evaluate, where are you? And if this morning you're ready to follow Jesus, then I would hope that you would do that now. It's not about saying a magical prayer. It's, it's not about somebody telling you what to believe. It's about you saying, Jesus, from this point forward in my life, I want to follow you with the help of the Spirit of God in my life. I want to follow after you. I want to be obedient to you. And I want to make this the moment that I trust you to save me of my sins and call me into relationship. You can do that in the privacy of this moment where you sit, or you can come and talk to me after the service or one of our team. We'd love to share with you more about what it means to follow Jesus. If you're somebody that struggles with these things and goes, I think this is all crazy, and thanks for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for, for giving us a chance to, to talk about what we believe. Can I tell you something? We know it sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. I say this all the time. Christians believe the craziest stuff, right? That there's a God who loves us, who's personal in the universe, who created us specifically, but he allowed sin to come into the world. That's crazy. Why would God do that? But then that he had a plan to redeem the world through his son, his perfect son, God, who took on flesh and came to this earth and died on a cross to pay for my sins so that I don't have to. That's crazy. That we believe after three days he came back to life again. That's crazy. But can I tell you something that I believe with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? I believe it's true. In faith and with evidence, I believe it's true. And I hope you'll come to believe that it's true as well. Thanks so much for checking out our message today. We hope you are challenged and blessed by it. We want to invite you to come and worship with us in person if you live in the Tri-Cities area. We meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and 1045 a.m. at One Fellowship Point in Kingsport, Tennessee. You can also get more information about us from our website or our mobile app. Have a great day.